what does greatness in the kingdom of heaven look like? And how is that greatness achieved? This is the question that the disciples were wrestling with in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 1. In fact, they were wrestling with a little bit of a different question. They were arguing amongst themselves as to who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It was an argument that they couldn't resolve between them. And so they end up going to Jesus in hopes that he'll be able to give them the answer to this question. But as is often the case uh, for the disciples and for us too, the disciples were asking the wrong question. The disciples were asking who would be the greatest. And instead of answering that question, Jesus answers the question, what does greatness in the kingdom of heaven look like? And how is that greatness achieved? The problem is that the disciples' definition of greatness wasn't correct. And so as a result, Jesus has to first correct for them their definition. And having defined greatness correctly for the disciples, he then goes on to establish for them the pathway to becoming great. That'll be our consideration for our second class together, pursuing greatness. And we'll take a look at the parable of the unforgiving servant because that's the context in which this parable is delivered. Now, if we're just to remind ourselves of the chronology as to where we're presently at in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, what we find is that we fast forward about seven or eight months from where we were before. We're now at the point of where Jesus has just gone up to the farthermost north point in the nation of Israel. He's gone up to Caesarea Philippi with his disciples to share with them what is about to take place. Matthew chapter 16 is where he was at the very far northern point, and he's sharing with them all the things that he would endure. And he really wanted to get them away from the multitude to help to impress upon them the reality that the crucifixion was coming. They still didn't fully grasp. They weren't coming to terms with the fact that he wasn't going to establish the kingdom but that instead he was going to be crucified. It's at that point in Matthew chapter 16, when Peter declares that he's the son of God, that even though many others were confused as to who Jesus was, Peter declares with absolute certainty that his Lord was the son of God. And Peter is given there the keys to the kingdom. But as Jesus goes on to lay out for the disciples what was going to happen to him, we also know that Peter steps in and rebukes Jesus and says, not so, pity yourself, these things won't happen to you. And Peter ends up getting rebuked. Get thee behind me, Satan, for you savor the things that be of God more than those things, or you savor those things that be of men more than the things that be of God. About a week later after that point in time, in Matthew 16, is the transfiguration, Matthew chapter 17. Peter, James, and John ascend to the Lord and see something that the other nine disciples weren't privileged to see. They saw the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus Christ. They saw Jesus in his future glory. And so with this vision of the kingdom in the minds of Peter, James, and John, the 12 disciples set out to return to Capernaum. But on their way back to Capernaum, we're told in Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 32, that they were disputing amongst themselves, presumably what they thought being out of earshot of the Lord Jesus Christ. But True to form, Jesus knew exactly what was taking place, and he asks them later what it is that they were talking about. Just imagine how hard this would have been for Jesus. Jesus had taken them away 
to a specific location to deliver a specific message because he's looking for help from his friends. He cares about them dearly, and he also is looking for support in a time when he really needed it. But instead of being there for him, they degrade into an argument about who's going to be the greatest, who's going to have personal preeminence when the kingdom is actually established. And so Jesus asked the question of what is it that you were talking about, by the way? It's interesting that Jesus doesn't jump in in the midst of their argument while they're talking or arguing on the walk, but he waits for a convenient time, an opportunity. And I wonder if there's a lesson for us in that of instead of jumping in prematurely to think about our approach and to look for an opportunity that God provides to us to address a situation that needs to be addressed. And so in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 1 is really where we enter the scene. And in this class, we'll take a look at three primary aspects as it pertains to greatness. Defining greatness properly, what does it look like and how is it obtained? Second is, how do our brothers and sisters factor into our pursuit of greatness? And third is, how is the parable of the unforgiving steward, or servant rather, tying it all together? How is it that we're to understand this parable in the context of the pursuit of being great and the involvement of our brothers and sisters in that journey? So when the disciples come to Jesus, if you could just turn to Matthew 18 and verse 1, and they ask him the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus doesn't answer a word. Instead, he calls a child over, beckons a child to come over, and he puts this little child in the midst of the disciples. Here are these full-grown men, likely still heated from this debate that they were having, waiting for Jesus to just simply give them the answer. And instead, they're now all staring down at this little child in the midst of them. And now Jesus speaks and he says, you need to be converted to be like this little child. Imagine a bunch of full-grown men listening to this, full-grown men who were upset at a heated debate that they were in, now being told that they need to be converted to be like this little child. Converted means to turn back. They need to do a 180, completely change their approach. Jesus says, if you don't change from your current approach, then you can forget about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom because you're not even going to be in the kingdom at all. That's what he says in verse 3, except you be converted to become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. And so as Jesus speaks on, he reveals to his disciples what he means by a reversal of their thought process. In verse 4, he tells them that if you want to be the greatest, then you have to develop humility. That's what he's talking about, the context of this little child, the one who humbles himself as a little child will be the greatest. This word for humble actually means to be ranked below others who are honored or rewarded. So just think about the apparent contrast here or contradiction. If you want to be the greatest, then you need to rank yourself below everybody else. If you want to be the top rank, then you have to think of yourself as lower than everyone else around you. This would have been very confusing for the disciples as a blank look would have come across their face of how are we supposed to make sense of that? Wouldn't it degrade your own position of greatness if, if you're esteeming others better than yourself? 
Well, it all depends on your definition of greatness. And that's what Jesus is getting at. Jesus never admonishes the disciples for their desire to be great. That's an important thing to note here. He doesn't rebuke them and say, you shouldn't want to be great. But rather, he says, you got to make sure that you define greatness correctly. God designed men and women to want to be great. And greatness is God's destiny for the faithful. Just take a look at some of these references. Abraham, I will make of thee a great nation. I will make thy name great. Genesis 12 and verse 2. Jacob, I will make of thee a great nation. Genesis 46 and verse 3. In the Deuteronomy 4, Israel and the land, God had made them into a great nation. Sometimes, though, we shrink back from greatness. Do we feel comfortable telling other people, I want to be great? We think, well, wait a minute. Just even hearing you say that, that doesn't sound very humble. But if we're not pursuing greatness, what are we actually pursuing? And if we are pursuing greatness, are we pursuing God's definition of greatness? The problem is that oftentimes what's meant by greatness is a status of where we are exceeding beyond others, where we are better than them. And as a result of our personal greatness, we have authority or position over somebody else. But that's not God's definition of greatness. That's man's definition. And Jesus needs to fix this definition for his disciples if he's going to make progress in the way that he wants to make progress with them. Turn over, if you would, to Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45. This is the incident where James and John come to Jesus and they say, well, we want to sit at your right hand and your left hand. They want these two preeminent positions of authority. That's about one week before the crucifixion when they come to him and they ask him that. Well, Jesus, in verses 35 to 37, listens to this request from James and John. But in verses 38 to 40, he doesn't upbraid them for their desire to be great. But he does address their definition of greatness. He says, can you be baptized with the baptism that I'm to be baptized with? Can you drink from the cup that I will drink from? Verse 41, what's the result of their pursuit of preeminence? Well, they become very upset. They become angry with James and John. And why shouldn't they be? They were seeking a position of preeminence, personal benefit at the expense of others. And in verses 42 to 45 of Mark chapter 10, Jesus goes on to fix the definition of greatness for all the disciples. If you take a look here at the order of events, we can see that this is what Jesus was trying to do for his disciples, was to address this definition of greatness and what it meant. And he distills it quite well in verses 42 to 45, where he says, You know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. And whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. The true definition of greatness, true greatness is not exercising authority over others. It's exercising ourselves in service to others. That's what Jesus is establishing with his disciples. Being great is not bad. Pursuing personal preeminence is bad. 
But pursuing godly greatness is what God has designed us to do. The key is defining greatness, defining success correctly. If this is Christ's definition of greatness, then how is it that our brothers and sisters factor into our pursuit of greatness? Jesus has already said that our admission into the kingdom of heaven is directly tied to humbling ourselves as children and ranking others in a position above ourselves. The primary thing that he brings up as to being a reason for why it is that we won't be in the kingdom is back in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 6. He says that if we go on to cause offense to others, then we are to beware of being in that position. He talks in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 3 about offending the little children. And I don't believe that he's talking exclusively about children in the ecclesia, but he's using this terminology of little children to refer to the disciples. Jesus talks about the children that he had received in one of his final prayers in John. Jesus calls the disciples little children in John 13 and verse 33. John himself refers to believers nine times as little children in his first epistle. And so the little ones that he's speaking about are those referred to in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 6, smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. And then I will turn my hand upon the little ones. This fulfillment of Zechariah 13 and verse 7 that occurred in Matthew 26 and verse 31. Those little ones were referring to the 11 disciples in this context. And so when Jesus is speaking about little children here in Matthew chapter 18, he's referring to all the believers, those who are actively trying to follow him. And so Jesus is using this little child as a parable, an object lesson to represent all believers and to break the disciples out of their mental stagnation, their anger and frustration, to look at something, to look at somebody outside of themselves and to realize that this little child is what they should be showing in terms of their humility and their service one to each other. The problem, though, is that they were going down a pathway of causing offense. By their argumentation and seeking preeminence one above the other, they were actually causing offense. And he refers to this word offense, Matthew 8 and verse, or 18 and verse 6, verse 8 and verse 9. And this word is scandalizo. It's similar to the word offense in uh, 18 verse 7, which is used three times. And that means to put a stumbling block in the way of somebody else. In other words, instead of helping others to the kingdom, our actions end up tripping up other people on the way to the kingdom, that we make it harder for them to get to the kingdom because we're making it to where they're stumbling as they're walking. This is actually the word that Jesus uses to Peter back in Matthew 16, where he says, get thee behind me, Satan, for thou art an offense unto me. Peter wasn't thinking about what would be helpful. He was thinking a bit about personal preservation based on what Jesus says to him. If a man seeks to save his life, then he'll lose it. And so when we don't think about other people, when we're primarily focused on what we have going on and things in our lives and the challenges that we're facing, we inadvertently start throwing stumbling blocks into the pathway of others because we're acting unconsciously. 
Verse 10 of Matthew chapter 18 provides some insight into this regard. Jesus says in Matthew 18 and verse 10, take hold, take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones. That word despise actually means to think little or nothing of. In other words, we're not thinking about other people. We're thinking little about them because we have too much going on in our own lives. And so the way that we demonstrate that we really care about each other is by thinking about how we can be helpful. And if we're not thinking about how we can be helpful, then inadvertently we'll find that we cause offense, that we make it harder for each other on the pathway to the kingdom. And instead of rising to the top in a position of preeminence, Jesus says that we will sink to the very bottom, that it's better that a millstone be hung around the neck and cost tossed to the bottom of the sea. And so it's very, very important that we think about the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, that our quest for greatness will only be successful if we're genuinely seeking the salvation of our brothers and sisters. And if we're unconscious, if we're not deliberate about really trying to help others, then we'll find that inadvertently we cause issues. Jesus talks about this in the context of Matthew chapter 18 and verse 8. If thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off, cast them from thee. If thine eye offend thee, in verse 9, it's all in the context of how our actions impact others. The things that we do with our hands, the places that we go with our feet, the entertainment, the things that we watch with our eyes. Those things, yes, they impact us, but Jesus is encouraging us to think about how do they impact other people? Are we even thinking about our impact on other people? But at this point, other people was the farthest thing from the minds of the disciples. They were more concerned about how things impacted them and their position. And so as you continue walking along through the account in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus continues to speak to the disciples, telling them that you can't be satisfied unless 100% is in the mix. And so in the course of this conversation with the disciples, Jesus is saying it's not just with the people that you naturally have an affinity with, that you naturally get along with. Matthew chapter 18 and verse 12, if you have 100 sheep and one of them goes astray, are you satisfied? Well, we've got 99%. That's critical mass. The 1%, well, I guess we'll need to move on. Jesus says, no, no. Of all that my Father has given me, I should lose nothing. But should be raise them up at the last day. And so he's telling the disciples, it's not just those who you have a natural affinity with. It's not just a critical mass, but you need to pursue the regaining of your brother at every opportunity, at every situation. And he covers this in detail in verses 15 to 20, the steps that we need to take to gain our brother. This isn't the chapter about disfellowship. This is the chapter of what are the steps that you go through to try to regain somebody who might be in a position of being lost. And we'll cover that in more detail in our next class, taking a look at the parables of the lost. And so this is a huge aspect that Jesus is bringing out for the disciples here. But it was something that caused a lot of thought for the disciples. The disciples would have gone back and thought about this in further detail and reflected on it. And you can see the result of some of that processing as we continue on in Matthew chapter 18. Because in verse 21, Peter comes back with a follow-up question. The follow-up question to Jesus is, 
how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? So Jesus, you've talked a lot about the responsibility that the individual has to recover and how we need to think about other people. And this needs to be at the forefront of our minds and we need to esteem others better than ourselves. But what's the limit of that? How far does that really extend? Is seven times enough? Seven times, is that sufficient? But what precipitates a question like this? Given the context, maybe Peter was personally upset. Maybe he was personally offended as to why other people would challenge his position of authority. We know that Peter was always the one who was listed first amongst the disciples. Even in the book of Acts, of all the disciples, Peter's name always comes first. Just a little bit of time ago, Matthew 16, he'd been given the keys to the kingdom by the Lord Jesus Christ. This wasn't an assertion by Peter. Christ was recognizing his position of authority. So why was it being doubted? So we wonder, well, maybe personally, Peter felt slighted here. And so he's following up with Jesus and he's asking him, when is enough enough? Seven times seems pretty sufficient. That's an extension of grace and mercy, right? Seven times. I mean, even Amos and his prophecy says for three transgressions and for four, I'm going to seven. But Jesus says not seven times. Try on 77 times. And you wonder if there's an unmistakable link back to Lamech of where Lamech was focused more on vengeance when he says in Genesis 4 and verse 24 that if Cain would be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech would be avenged 77-fold. And you wonder if this is an insight into where Peter's mind was at, that Peter was wondering, when is personal vengeance justified? When have I gone through enough steps of forgiving or recovering others, and now enough's enough? Well, this is where Jesus goes on to deliver to Peter the parable of the unforgiving servant. And he gives to Peter the answer to the question that Peter should have been asking. Instead of expanding on the question regarding the limits of forgiveness, Jesus answers the question, how do I develop compassion for other people? How often have we found ourselves asking that question? What's the requirements that somebody else needs to go through before I forgive them? That's the question that Peter was asking. How many times do I need to go through? What's the limits? What's the requirements? Jesus says, well, I'm going to tell you how to develop compassion. And a thought question for us is how often in life do we find ourselves asking the wrong question? We wonder, well, why don't I get the clear answer? Why am I not receiving an answer to my question? Perhaps we're asking the wrong question. The disciples here, Peter was asking the wrong question. And Jesus goes on to answer for him the right question. It's hard to genuinely seek our brethren if we don't have compassion for them. And Jesus could see that this is something that was missing here with the disciples. And this is brought out in the parable at the end of Matthew chapter 18 and verse 33, when the master says, Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? Remember, this was a parable that was given to Peter to answer this question. Unless that we think that this parable is disconnected from what happened at the beginning of Matthew chapter 18, note how Jesus begins this parable. 
Jesus says in verse 23, therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto, and he continues on. The very question at the beginning of Matthew chapter 18 and verse 1 is, who is going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And so what Jesus is going to do for Peter and for us is he's going to highlight a few key points. First is he's going to talk about Peter's personal account balance regarding the kingdom in verses 23 to 26. How much positive equity did Peter have built up that he could rely upon when it came to the kingdom? The second thing that he was going to exemplify is the character of the king who sits on the throne of that kingdom. How does the king rule his realm? And the result of that in verses 28 to 35 is the king's expectations of his subjects. King doesn't expect of others what he's not willing to do himself. And so the question becomes, how should we view and treat our fellow servants? And so in this parable, we have the instance of where a man has an irrepayable amount of debt, comes before the master, falls at his feet, and is frankly forgiven for everything that he owes. We know the story well. The man rises up, finds somebody as soon as he leaves the presence of the king, grabs that individual by the throat because he owes him a far less amount of money, throws that servant in prison until he can repay everything that he owes. The king hears from the rest of his servants about this terrible tragedy that's taken place and calls that original servant back into his presence and delivers him to the tormentors and says, look, you didn't appreciate what I did for you. I'm going to reinstate all of your debt. And now, now you're going to be handed over to the tormentors. And that's the end of this man. And we're given the lesson at the end there, verse 35. So likewise shall my heavenly father do also unto you, if you from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. So let's take a look at this parable in a bit more detail to see some of the lessons that are coming out for us. Greatness is when we develop God's character and when we show it to others. That's the true definition of greatness. And Jesus is going to exemplify this through a story. Just think if he would have told Peter, your mind's in the wrong place. You're thinking of all the wrong things. Peter's defenses would have come up. But Jesus masterfully delivers a story about different people entirely. And then connects the pieces for Peter to show him that this man was him. The parable of the unforgiving servant was initiated by this question around limits of forgiveness. And it answers the question of how do I develop compassion? You think about what this man came forward with. He owes an insurmountable amount of debt. I found this to be interesting to take a look at what it is that he actually owes here. This man in Matthew 18 and verse 24 owes 10,000 talents. I have no idea what that means, or at least I didn't. So 10,000 talents, one talent reckoned by weight is 32.3 kilograms. A day's wage, also given biblically in Matthew 20 and verse 2, was one denarius, which weighs 3.9 grams. So one talent would be the equivalent by weight of 23 years worth of labor. So 10,000 talents would be the equivalent of 230,000 and 56 years of labor. So this man is called on the carpet by his master, falls prostrate before him, and appeals for patience in verse 26. Have patience with me, and I will repay thee all. 
But this simply wasn't true, was it? No amount of patience would enable somebody to pay 230,000 years worth of labor back. It just wasn't possible. This man, what this reveals to us is that this man didn't seem to grasp the gravity of his debt that he owed before the king. Otherwise, how could you ever appeal for patience as though you think that somehow, given enough time, you'd be able to pay it back. But how often do we find ourselves in the same position? If we just keep trying, if we keep applying ourselves, eventually we'll get it right. We'll be able to work our way to righteousness and get out of the spiritual debt that we're in. The reality, though, is that no amount of patience from our Lord will result in us being in a position of where we can become debt free. The only way that we can become debt free is through forgiveness, through the forgiveness of our debt shown by the grace and mercy of the king who sits on the throne. But quite often we don't appreciate the gravity of this. We think, you know, I got some room for improvement, but do we really envision that amount of debt? And the reason that this is key becomes apparent based on the response of this man when he leaves the presence of the parable, or of the king rather. He leaves the presence of the king because in this parable, the man only begins to grovel in verse 24 when he's called to task. Before this, the man seems to be skating by, somewhat oblivious to his responsibilities or the gravity of the debt that he owes. What about us? How aware are we in conducting self-examination? Or are we only aware when something becomes visibly apparent to other people and suddenly we become embarrassed? Are we that aware when things are behind the scenes? We'll see in a later parable that Jesus says that everything is gonna be made plain. So we need to be going through that self-examination now. And verses 23 to 26 really hit home as to what the point is that Peter's making to the disciples. What point is that is being made to Peter that look, your account balance has so much negative equity that you simply can't get out from under it. That's point number one of the parable. When you're asking how much you need to forgive Peter, envision yourself as the man with an irrepayable amount of debt. What about the king who sits upon the throne? What is his character like when you think about it? Well, we get insight into the master here when it says that he was moved with compassion. It's this Greek word of splachnizomai, which means to have the bowels yearn of where inside the intestines, the stomach is just gripped by this feeling. I'm sure that we've all experienced something like that before. Perhaps we have a significant amount of stress that's coming into our life. Maybe a circumstance that we don't see a solution to, a challenge that's facing us, a very difficult family situation. And we feel the stress of that situation. And we can feel it in our body that our body has a response to it, like someone is gripping our stomach. That's how Jesus describes the king that's sitting on the throne as he sees this poor servant prostrate before him. Think about the kings of the earth. Think about the response that we would expect to see. A man comes before you that has exhibited gross negligence with your belongings. You don't even know, like, how do you even accumulate this amount of debt? How is that even possible? And then this man has the audacity to grovel at your feet and ask you for patience? This guy doesn't have a clue. He doesn't get it. And you can imagine how a, a monarch in today's age would, you know, get this wretch away from me. I don't have time for this. Just liquidate his assets. Whatever you can do, just recover what you can. It's a lost cause. 
But Jesus says that's not the character of our Heavenly Father. That's not how he looks at us. And that's not how Jesus looked at the disciples. Jesus showed this same experience, this same being moved with compassion in various instances throughout the ministry. Matthew 14 and verse 14, it drove him to heal. Matthew 15 and verse 32, it drove him to feed others, to forgive here. And in Mark 6 and verse 34, to teach in every case, it drove action. It drove a response. And what was expected is that this individual would learn and do the same thing in their interactions with others. Do we feel the same feeling when it comes to our forgiveness of other people? Or do we feel an element of annoyance that this person has caused us an inconvenience that we now need to deal with or that they've incurred a debt for which they now owe us? What Jesus is pointing out to Peter is that forgiveness is not something that God does. Forgiveness is part of who God is. And just as our nature drives us to do things that separate us from God, God's nature is merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth. God's nature is driving him to forgive us and to save us from ourselves. That's point number two of the parable. Peter needed to understand the character of the king who sits upon the throne so that when he's asking the question, what are the limits for forgiveness? He realizes how God looks at it, that God is looking at how can I forgive and deliver and save and help others who find themselves in a position that they can't redeem themselves from. Peter's issue was that he didn't have compassion for his brother. The issue of forgiveness is what precipitated this whole parable. Forgiveness is something that he felt constrained to do. It was an unwelcome requirement, not something that he wanted to do. He didn't view forgiveness as a way to be able to show the character of God to others. He viewed forgiveness as something that he had to do, and eventually he could be done meeting that requirement to move on to be justified with showing personal vengeance against others who had offended him. Pressure came from the outside to make this something that he had to do, he had to forgive, but the internal motivation, that being moved with compassion from within, simply wasn't there. So this third aspect then of what the king expects us to do with that knowledge of who he is, well, a genuine care for others needs to come from a reflection upon what God has done for us. But what happens with this servant? This servant immediately leaves the presence of the king and goes and finds somebody else who owes him a debt. He directs his attention to somebody, blames somebody else for the position that he finds himself in. He goes and finds somebody who owes him 100 pence. How much is 100 pence? Well, 100 pence is 100 days labor. That's about a third of a year of labor. So not a small deal. That's a pretty big deal, right? If somebody owed you a third of a year's wages. But how does that compare to 230,000 years wages? Well, it looks pretty small when you compare it that way, right? It's like what Brother Stan was talking about with being in Sinai versus being at a location today. I mean, let's go to Sinai, right? It sounds fantastic. 
Well, the same thing here, when you take a look at this circumstance here, 230,000 years versus a third, like it's not even worth bringing up in a sentence. But this man, he goes and grabs the fellow servant by the neck, chokes him by the neck. And this servant in verse 29, who's being choked, drops to the floor and finds himself in the exact same position as this other servant who was on the floor before his master appealing for forgiveness. Do you see the irony here? Do you see how this should have triggered in his mind, broken him free from his fit of rage and forced him to realize, wait a minute, I, I was just in that position a few moments ago. Should have broken him free and created compassion for his fellow servant. How many times have we found ourselves in this position of praying to our Heavenly Father for forgiveness, only to then go and find somebody who owes us something that is significant, but is vastly insignificant to what it is that we owe to our Heavenly Father and what it is that we've been forgiven for, and demanding that somebody repay us the debt that is owed. But this servant is not moved with compassion, and instead he throws his fellow servant into prison until he pays what he owes. You see the contradiction here. How was this man supposed to repay something when he was thrown into prison? What opportunity would he have to make any kind of wage in prison? It reveals the intent here of this initial servant. The intent was not for reconciliation or for making things right. The intent was vengeance. And he put this man in a position of where he couldn't repay because vengeance was what he pursued and not forgiveness or reconciliation. This can often be the case for us when we're forced to look in the mirror of self-examination. Studying ourselves in that mirror is just too painful. We find ourselves looking away, looking to some external circumstance, some other situation in our lives as an explanation for why we find ourselves in this troubling situation. We wouldn't be here if it weren't for so-and-so's actions. I wouldn't have responded that way if they didn't do that. And we find ourselves focused on if we could just fix everybody else, then I'd be a better person. And we fail to realize the debt that we actually owe to our Heavenly Father. We fail to truly own that. And that's what Jesus is speaking to Peter about here is the need for him to own the debt, to realize the negative equity that he has, to step back and appreciate what God had done. And to use that to drive the development of compassion for other people who find themselves in the exact same situation that we are in when we approach the throne of our Heavenly Father. This is the greatest thing that he's trying to get Peter to realize. And what do the other servants do when they see this ill treatment? Well, the other servants in verse 31, they go and tell the king. There will be times when we see unjust treatment, when we see the wrong thing being done. Yes, we can speak up in those situations. Yes, it's helpful to advocate. The best thing that we can do is to tell our Heavenly Father in prayer, to appeal to him when we see wrong things going on in the world around us, when we see wrong things taking place in the ecclesia, to take it to the king in prayer. God will make it right in his time, just as he does in the parable. God will make these things right. But look at for the message that's delivered to this 
unforgiving servant. This unforgiving servant is now unforgiven for all the things that he had once been forgiven for. He's handed over to the tormentors or the torturers, as we're told in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 34. These individuals were reserved for the most heinous criminals. And what Jesus is doing here is he's exemplifying that this is one of the most heinous crimes that we can commit against each other is when we don't forgive the debts that are incurred against us, when we don't show compassion toward others. There's a certain brand of forgiveness that's required. And Jesus says in verse 35 that we need to forgive from the hearts. From our hearts, we need to forgive each other. God expects us to show grace and mercy. God does this for us, and he expects us to do the same from the heart. We've all heard of the expression forgive and forget, but if the offense is grievous enough, it's very difficult for us to do that. But it is possible for us to treat that individual as though the thing hadn't happened, to be able to move forward. Each situation is unique. I can appreciate that. But we know that this spirit is something that needs to be within us, of showing compassion. And so as we take a look at some of the lessons that come out, we can see that the process that God follows is that God shows undeserved favor or grace toward us. And he demonstrates his grace by patiently forgiving us. The expectation for us is that we reflect on God's faithfulness, his truth toward us, and develop a deep appreciation. But if we don't take the time to reflect, if we don't appreciate how much we've been forgiven, then we're going to really struggle with this next step of identifying with the plight of others and patiently having compassion on them. And because of seeing ourselves in them and relating to their circumstance, we can genuinely forgive others and we can be obedient to our Heavenly Father by faithfully showing his character. It's a threefold process. That Jesus is laying out here. He's saying that first we receive from our Heavenly Father. Then we are expected to reflect upon what has been done for us. And then we are expected to reciprocate to our brothers and sisters in the way that we treat each other. We have to wholeheartedly show to others what God has shown to us. We receive, we reflect, and we reciprocate. But if we cut ourselves short on the time of reflection, of the time of really appreciating the gravity of what God has done for us, then we're going to find it very difficult to reciprocate from the heart the forgiveness that God has shown to us. The servant appealed for patience. Have patience with me. And we can struggle to be patient. When we are impatient, we react to life circumstances rather than use godly principles to drive our behaviors. And God is only willing to have patience with us when we show that same patience to others. We read in James 1, verses 19 to 20, Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. There's times, I think, when we all struggle to be patient, whether it's with our friends, our spouses, our children, our parents, our brothers and sisters. We all struggle with patience. But where it really hit me hard is reading 1 Corinthians 13. And you read about the definition of love. 
What is the first attribute that's listed when we read about love? Love is patient. And if we're not showing the patience the servant is appealing for here, then we're not showing love. It's an element that's missing. And so as we think about that good ground of being rooted and grounded in love, the way that we do that is by the development of compassion, by reflecting on what God has done for us. This is how we truly pursue greatness in our walk toward the kingdom. And so in summary then, as we think about this parable of the unforgiving servant, and we think about the context of it, true greatness is not exercising authority over others. It's exercising ourselves in service to others. We're a stumbling block, though, if we're not considering the impact of our decisions upon others, that we actually need to be thoughtful, not thinking about what we have going on, but considering other people and how it is that we're helping them to the kingdom. We have to actively seek the salvation of all of our brothers and sisters, not just the ones that we have a natural affinity for or that we get along with, but even the ones that perhaps are a bit challenging. That's why Jesus brings up the 99 and the one additional. Peter, even go after the one that's giving you the problems because we might be that problem for another brother or sister. We need to be committed to working together in that regard. Jesus tells us that greatness is when we develop God's character and show it to others. And finally, that God expects us to develop compassion for others by considering what he's done for us through his son. Those are the elements of pursuing greatness that he's communicating here to his disciples, to Peter, and ultimately to us.